This episode of The Clear Out was recorded on the 11th of July 2023 at home in Wicklow. And it is an episode largely dedicated to what I consider the conundrum of Richard Gere, an actor who I've always found kind of off-putting, almost repellent and yet completely fascinating at the same time so there is a a tension there and I look at Gear through his quite a few of his movies get a mention I focus on a a couple in particular and I focus on the very particular thing he was uh, as a young hot Hollywood actor and how he leaned into his physicality and his sexuality so intently uh, and the results of that. Um, I also focus on a single line of criticism aimed at Richard Gere in his performance in Pretty Woman and that line of criticism comes from the great film writer and critic David Thompson I spend a bit of time on that and that one line of criticism leads me to a couple of poems and it's a strange segue not completely unconnected but I finish today's episode with a recitation of one of the worst poems ever written and it's not one of mine (laughs) um I also cite uh, an article from 1990, a profile of Richard Gere, and in the episode I mistakenly cite it as being from Variety, when in fact it was from Vanity Fair. So I just wanted to clarify that at the outset. And there's a brilliant little uh, insight expressed in that profile by an ex-girlfriend of Richard Gere's, which I thought was fascinating. Um, so that's it that's um, that's what's coming up so if you like Richard Gere if you're interested in Richard Gere if you have my kind of conflicted relationship to Richard Gere the actor the performer the sex symbol I think you'll enjoy this episode so um, get ready to ride the gear stick with me <laughs> I'll see you around the corner cheers Ooh, not gonna change my mind Hi, my name is Dara Clear and you're listening to The Clear Out. You're very welcome. You're very welcome to this sacred space. (laughs) Now, that's a very grandiose way to start this episode. Is it sacred? Who decides what is sacred? Anyway, regardless, you are welcome to this space, this space in time. Where you have decided to pass a moment or two and once again it is a free form organic exploration of of something and this week's something i'm not entirely sure what it is all i know at this point of departure is that i want to spend 
sometime talking about Richard Gere. I may refer to Paul Newman. I may even refer to Brad Pitt. Maybe Matthew McConaughey. Maybe other beautiful men. (laughs) Beautiful male actors. Um, But I'm not sure. And I will refer to a great line of criticism regarding one of Richard Gere's most famous performances and that's led me somewhere else so there might be some unexpected poetry not my own uh, not my own but some other unexpected poetry to to share so yes and also I'm recording this quite late at night and I'm I'm tired. <laughs> now that that type of tiredness can be a good thing because it sort of drops it drops you down into yourself. Do you know that kind of tiredness where your energy is just sitting in a very deep place but it, it it's good. It's good. And I've made a choice. And the choice is to sit down and record this. And I was delayed. I was delayed by some technical nonsense. Um, some technological nonsense. Um, just my my computer wasn't behaving. Um, something I find extremely frustrating. So the fact that I can sit here now and speak in an apparently very relaxed, very chilled out tone of voice is uh, is quite the achievement <laughs> because I was quite frustrated mere moments ago anyway here I am I'm going to try and keep this episode um, comparatively short and if you haven't been here before the point of comparison is other the other episodes I generally episodes generally roll to about um 75 or 80 or 85 minutes sometimes I think this week's episode will come in under an hour and the simple very selfish reason is that I need to go to bed (laughs) so do you still feel special do you still feel like I'm putting a lot of effort into this do you still feel like I'm prioritizing the production of my best work my best weekly effort in this somewhat maligned format yes yes I did just say that the podcast bro I've already made my my case my my, my case of defense uh, I do not believe I am a podcast bro because there are no bros on this show I mean I am a bro I have three brothers but um, that's not what they're talking about. They're not talking about that. Anyway, now this is, um, I, I, I mean, I maybe I, I flatter myself, but I believe that this, this ongoing weekly enterprise, this weekly endeavor, this independent piece of output, I believe it's a bit of an outlier because I'm not sure who else is doing this. Certainly not some anonymous, pretentious buffoon like myself in 
a beautiful corner of rural Ireland. I'm not sure if anybody else is doing this with such, what, delusion, commitment, uh, self-deprecation, self-loathing. <laughs> oh yes, oh yes. It's been, it's been one of those weeks. I had a, I had a, uh, an assault, an assault of the mind and soul, self-inflicted. Well, I'm not sure if that's fair, is it? I mean, self-inflicted suggests a certain amount of agency. Um, I refer, I refer to an intense bout of something akin to depression, but firier than that. I think it's a temporary loss of faith. So in that regard, I might, I might be comparing myself to a spiritual person. That's probably, that's probably not unreasonable. I don't want to say a man of the cloth, but a spiritual person nonetheless. The, the spiritual quest continues it's a part of the the everyday leaning the everyday urge a huge part of the the the, the, the internal space the internal whirrings of my mind are caught up with a sort of a spiritual questing um Mm, I told you, I did say pretentious. Um, but in that regard, I, I think that is, that's sort of the, you know, the, the the ascetic person who removes themselves from everyday pleasures and removes themselves from society, tries to remove themselves from the distraction of life, the distraction of the material. Um, and applies oneself like a blade to to a whetstone a metaphysical a metaphysical exercise an exploration or an incessant leaning into the attempt to understand life mm, wordy wordy verging on verbose i'm not sure that's what you need and i'm going to give you a couple of other things you don't need in this episode um i did i did write that down in a in a journal in a diary um some years ago i'd scrolled out some verses some some attempt at poetic expression and I can't remember how I phrased it. I was sort of poking fun at myself. Um, I think it was a sort of a rhetorical question. What is bad poetry the, the answer to? And then I think I wrote the question, what does nobody want? <laughs> bad poetry. Um, and I'm going to, I, I'm, I'm playing with the idea of reading you 
what is by some considered to be the worst poem ever written. I find that so funny. I find that so funny. <laughs> I mean, it's the it's the essence of comedy, isn't it? Isn't that the essence of comedy? The person who who is unaware of their colossal failings and their colossal shortcomings, but they proceed pell mell. They proceed with such glorious enthusiasm and self assuredness and they're they're a disaster um it's just brilliant i mean somebody like will ferrell i think is a great he's a great kind of modern clown uh, he, he he achieves that effortlessly um and it is it's an act of comic genius but the poem i intend to read um that was not someone who was laughing at themselves it was just awful awful stuff anyway i do find that very funny so that that could be part of your your listening pleasure uh in this episode so brace yourself brace your sensitive soul if you're someone who cannot tolerate bad poetry bad art it's coming uh i mean i would argue i do argue i do argue that the this podcast uh, is art making of a kind. It's expression. It's artistic expression. It's personal expression, um, and it's it's organic. And in the organic nature of it, it is a type of artistic endeavor, um, and hopefully, it's more than mere rambling more than mere self-indulgence but as always uh, I leave that to you to decide I make no claims other than the only claim I really make for the clear out is that there's a truthfulness to it and there's an honesty and something discernibly authentic because it's coming from it's coming it's coming from something real me i am a real person these are real thoughts out of my head happening live in the moment of recording that is and the balancing act is to try to make the thoughts and words and intention cohere and Yes, I think mostly they do. Anyway, anyway, listen, that's um, that's 12 and a half minutes of preamble. And I'm not trying to uh, buy time. I'm not hedging or faffing or filibustering. Um, I'm exploring the thought process from my seat. And yes, as I said, I wanted to start with Richard Gere, the actor, the American actor, who I think is now 73. Richard Gere, what's your relationship to Richard Gere? What's your relationship to his work as an actor? Your relationship to him as an 
as an what as an avatar of Buddhism, um, as as an activist, um, as a sex symbol of yesteryear. Is he still? Is he still a sex symbol? Do you see the twinkly-eyed uh, grey fox that he now is? And well, he has been. He's been. He's been grey for some time. Um, and go, yeah, there he is. There's Richard. Um, I've always had quite mixed feelings about him. Um, I could never. I, I've I've never been able to decide if I like him or not. But. I th- I'm sure. I'm sure. I've mentioned one of his early performances uh, on on the on the podcast before, and I remember seeing that. God, quite a few years ago, maybe twenty years ago, and it was you know it was it was from the, it was from the the seventies the performance from a film called Looking for Mister Goodbar, which is quite. Um, I mean, ultimately, quite a, a harrowing story about a single woman catholic a catholic single woman in america looking for love in i don't want to say all the wrong places but just out single meeting guys in bars and you know going home for for sex just seeing what the story is um and that woman was played by diane keaton and Probably one of my favourite Diane Keaton performances. I, I don't always love Diane Keaton. I find her a bit sticky. Um, although I know she's beloved by many. And particularly in that sort of Annie Hall kooky mode. But I, I don't like that kooky mode in in actresses. In actors, it falls into that area of I'm playing cute. And I just kind of go, I just don't believe you. I don't believe this person. Uh, and even in a comedy as esteemed as Annie Hall I've got to believe you Um, yeah I don't know anyway um, Richard Gere has a role in that movie and he, he just can't be contained he just can't be contained he's jumping around the apartment and swinging off I don't know what he finds to swing off, but he does. And he's just explosive yeah, with his physicality and his his kind of uncontainable um, puppy energy. That's also sexual energy and supremely confident. And I think... I think that's what I always tapped into when I'd come across his movies um, as a, a younger film watcher was just this, I couldn't get away from this sense that he was enormously pleased with himself. Um, there was a kind of a smugness and a self-satisfaction that I always found very off-putting. Um, a sort of an absence of humility. Uh I don't know. But anyway, I mean, and he's had these, you know, obviously he's had these sort of iconic roles. Um, probably American Gigolo, the Paul Schrader movie. Again, going back to 
that's was that still the seventies or was it the early eighties? Um, wearing, isn't he wearing Armani in that? And it's there's something about some of those. It must be eighties. It's got such an eighties feel that movie. There's a, that that eighties. What was it? What was the eighties aesthetic? Now I'm not talking about the the physical the 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 the, the, the fashion aesthetic because that's easy to recall. Um, you know the shoulder pads and the the sharp lines, but there was a there was a sort of a, a sensibility of cool that was very um very emotionless and very icy and aloof a very particular hauteur I suppose epitomised by somebody epitomised maybe almost to the point of um, ridiculousness by Michelle Pfeiffer in Brian De Palma's Scarface when she's playing, is it Elvira? Is that her name? Elvira? Um, who's the kind of the mall of Robert Loggia's uh, kind of gangster head who is ultimately kind of supplanted by Pacino's Scarface. Um, uh, Tony Montana, the sort of psychopathic um, Cuban renegade who just intends to you know have it all and uh, Michelle Pfeiffer is very much in his in his sights and she's just yeah the ice queen um, but yeah I mean Richard Gere in American Gigolo is also trying to convey that that aloofness, sort of a, an emotional austerity, um, which he does as as Julian, the you know the, the you know the gigolo in L.A. It's such a classic kind of L.A. movie as well as anything else. But um, yeah, he he has in that as well. Obviously, you know because of the nature of the, of the story, he's meant to be this encapsulation of of male beauty and sexuality and that seemed to be his his bag um so much of the time um but what came along after american gigolo was an officer and a gentleman um and again i haven't i haven't gone back and uh, memorized his filmography so it may not have been directly afterwards but it was again I think you know I know for many many people excuse me an officer and a gentleman is you know one of the definitive 80s um, you know kind of romantic dramas and he's the the little lost boy who enlists in the army and is uh, subjected to a reign of terror and intimidation by Lou Gossett Jr.'s uh, drill sergeant and he kind of eventually makes a man of him and um, on his kind of travels uh, when he's off duty 
he falls in with um, Deborah Winger, you know, the factory worker, the conveyor belt um, factory line worker. And of course, it's that it's that memorable scene at the end of the movie where he 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 goes to the factory in his in his whites uh, and carries her out of there like he's carrying her over the the threshold to take her away to a life of <laughs> wedded bliss. Um, to the strains of love lifts us up where we belong. Is that right? I think I've only ever seen that movie once, and I feel like I remember the Mad magazine spoof of it more than anything else which featured Lou Gossett Jr. getting an almighty kick between the legs um, and I think I also remember from that Mad Magazine tribute was just Richard Gere's ridiculous lips uh, well drawn that way in in, in, in Mad and again probably sending up his sending up his beauty but um, yeah, again, I think I the only other two movies I remember seeing him in. I remember watching Days of Heaven, Terence Malick's movie, which was an early, bigger role for Gear. Um, and is it Brooke Adams is the actress playing with him in that? This sort of depression era. Um, drama played out across these kind of midwestern farms where migrant workers were you know moving just to you know to survive um and that movie is probably most memorable for the the beautiful photography of of terence malick and if he was was he the cinematographer as well as the director it might be that might be a slip up there but um you know, it was Richard Gere and Brooke Adams, and then there was the the young character. There was a young girl who's part of their little group, their little little trio, and she's we're sort of seeing the story play out through her eyes. And was her name Linda Gantz? Is that it? I might be wrong. I might be. I might not have that right. But ultimately, of course, they land on the farm, the property of the sort of. Um, the taciturn Sam Shepard who becomes besotted with Brooke Adams and they end up marrying but she and Gear hatch a plot to to basically rob him and run away and it, it ends in, in tragedy um, sorry if you haven't seen Days of Heaven you should go and check it out not to be confused with Days of Thunder <laughs> the 1990 romantic drama with uh, Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise Robert Duvall and Michael Rooker if I recall correctly um, Cole Trickle wasn't that Tom Cruise's name in that he's um, he's a race car driver on the edge and maybe that was where he and Nicole met and um the rest is uh, the rest is history, uh, but yeah, if I had to choose to to rewatch one of those, um, I did like Robert Duvall's performance in that movie. I was a big, big Robert Duvall fan at that time in my life. Um, I think I'd go for Days of Heaven. Okay, Days of Heaven, fantastic. Um, and Richard Gere, he wasn't 
in days of heaven you know he, he he wasn't doing the i'm i'm too sexy for my shirt stuff which became a sort of a hallmark of his of his 80s output um he was very quick to to strip off and show you his goods um but yeah days of heaven that was one of the movies i remember seeing and then 19 was it 1991 or 1990 when was pretty woman i think pretty woman's 1990 i remember seeing pretty woman and again just kind of going do i like this guy i'm really not sure but again pretty woman a movie i've probably only seen once but feel like i know it very well just because it's occupied such a space in 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 pop culture and part of the the unstoppable ascent of julia roberts to the top of the the hollywood tree and again julia roberts someone i was always a little bit indifferent to i was never really fully seduced by her charms and i know that's sacrilege in some corners there was something about her enormous mouth and her enormous smile and all those teeth i think i was scared of them i thought she might come off the screen and eat me and devour me if i got too close to those gnashers that i would be no more and that enormous hair um i don't know i I was always yeah quite i mean is agnostic to poncy a word i suppose though i mean fundamentally a little bit unconvinced i did like her in erin brockovich at the time um but i don't know there was something there was something around the time of notting hill where she was basically playing a version of herself and it all got very self-referential um i just don't find that stuff interesting i don't find it interesting i don't find it clever i find it irritating and it's like is that it can we not actually just give her a character that's a bit a bit more interesting are you inviting us in this very meta way to feel sorry for julia roberts and her enormous success and her enormous mouth i don't know i don't know although i know i'm aware that she's received critical acclaim in recent years for some other things that she's done and i haven't seen them so maybe um i'll check those out and i can report back uh but in any case pretty woman um was she a very unlikely prostitute and let's remind ourselves just you know for the the boffins in the room i mean pretty woman was meant to be a, a version of pygmalion a version of my fair lady the the girl plucked from the gutter and taught how to behave in higher society and learning how to be a, a lady i mean it's a it's a very patronizing arc one way or another um but I am a huge fan of My Fair Lady, I have to say. I'm very charmed by uh, Audrey Hepburn's performance in that. Um, it works. It works, doesn't it? Doesn't it work? Do you disagree? In a way that I wasn't necessarily charmed by Julia Roberts. And 
anyway Richard Gere so I'm going to come back to Pretty Woman in a moment but there was another movie he made around that time which I loved and I didn't see it in the cinema I remember seeing it on video and again it's an early 90s movie directed by Mike Figgis and starring Richard Gere and Nancy Travis and uh, Andy Garcia really Andy Garcia at the the peak (laughs) the peak of his Latin hotness his emotional fiery hurtful hotness Um, yeah Andy Garcia God he had a moment didn't he brilliant in The Untouchables and then brilliant again in this movie Internal Affairs as the Internal Affairs cop who is investigating Richard Gere's dirty cop and Richard Gere is just running rings around him and driving him demented and convincing Andy Garcia that he's seduced his wife and Richard Gere brilliant if that's it if I if I if I had to choose a single Richard Gere performance from his now quite substantial career that's the one I take he is brilliant he is such a nasty nasty piece of work so instead of us being invited to go hey here's this smug delighted with himself guy um let's you know but he's a good guy even though he's just preening his way through every role they just flipped it and went let's make him a kind of a monster a vicious nasty sadistic venal monster and he was absolutely brilliant that is a movie you need to see if you haven't seen it internal affairs go and check it out and you will enjoy those performances and oh, I've just gone blank on the actress's name she played Roseanne's sister in the, you know Roseanne Barr's long running sitcom is it Laurie Metcalf I think it is she plays Andy Garcia's partner in that m- movie and she's good as well she was also very good in Lady Bird wasn't she um, Saoirse Ronan's mother in that Greta, that lovely Greta Gerwig movie I continue to be a Greta Gerwig fan. I haven't seen Barbie yet. Is it out yet? I don't like the look of it. And I know, surprise, surprise, Barbie um, is perhaps not for a 49-year-old straight uh, white man in Ireland. (laughs) But Greta Gerwig has done so well. Her movies as a director have been so good. I thought, is she going to do something really cool with this? It just, I don't know, it looks like a one-joke movie. Um, All very knowing and wink-wink. And I just don't, again, the self-referential thing, it's not not my bag. I just think it's a very um, egregious form of Hollywood comedy. Uh, Now, I haven't seen it, so I might be extremely wrong about that. But the trailer, what if the trailer I saw, or the bits of trailer I've seen, seem to suggest it's going in that direction anyway um Richard Gere okay so the thing that I found myself resisting I think was best summed up 
by the film critic David Thompson. You've heard me talk about my admiration for David Thompson before on this podcast. David Thompson, English, but a film critic who writes for... Who does he write for? Does he write for the London Review of Books? Does he does he write for one of the, the, the American publications? I'm not sure. He did write for The Observer, I think, for many years. Again, my, my references are all over the shop. doesn't matter. He's a, he's a highly prolific um, author of film criticism. And he's always banging out books. And he has great, great books on, you know, the history of cinema, books on directing, books on great directors, books on great performers. And one of my favourite books of his, though, um, if you don't want to go hard into his criticism, which is quite cerebral, but always brilliantly written. Um, and a, a critic who is absolutely sure of his own point of view, which really helps. <laughs> that sounds very obvious, but you'd be surprised. Um, but he has a great book that's simply called Have You Seen? Have You Seen? And it's a book of, I think, a thousand movie reviews. Now, they're not movie reviews that were published. Uh, so it's not like taking his his work and putting it into a book. It's a book where he writes a thousand one-page synopses and reviews of movies from the history of cinema. Um, now, I don't know if there's an updated edition but I had a copy which I gave to a friend in Melbourne when I, I left Australia because she was a, a former actress and uh, you know movie fan, particularly uh, classic Hollywood stuff. Um, and in that book, there's David Thompson's review of, or his treatment <laughs> of Pretty Woman. And he has this one line in that book. Now, I'm paraphrasing, but basically, this is pretty close to what he wrote, I'm sure. It's, it's very accurate. He said, there's Richard Gere, a pasha tolerating his own pleasure. That is an extraordinarily brilliant and perceptive one sentence criticism of Richard Gere's acting persona a pasha tolerating his own pleasure I just thought oh my god that's it that is it he's it, it's 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 a, it's a very sophisticated line of criticism and character assassination. Um, but there's an implied vanity and self-importance in that sentence. Um, that is extraordinarily astute. Uh, so... I take my hat off to David Thompson because that's what he's capable of. That's what he's capable of and that's why his film writing is so compelling and so worth reading. That single line, a pasha tolerating his own pleasure, 
it's it's just it's yeah it's genius and it just makes sense it just fits um and at that stage pretty woman was a revival it was a career reignition for richard Gere because he had flailed and flailed through some absolute turkeys through the 80s to the two most famous or the most two most infamous perhaps um king david the story of david from the bible and there's an excruciating scene in that movie where richard Gere as king david dances through the streets of jerusalem in a sort of a loincloth in broad daylight and it has to be seen to be believed and then francis ford coppola's um yeah his uh kind of 30s gangster era flop his pudding the cotton club which again i think i've only ever seen once and it's a strange misfire it's all style um it just lacks it just lacks something it just lacks it, it there's something very inert about it but i i always feel i want to go back and watch it again and richard Gere, he's a isn't he a trumpet player in that and diane lane's in that he of course in the, in the 90s he did a couple of erotic thrillers um or erotic romance movies with uh diane lane um yeah what's that one i've gone blank gone blank on it where he's 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 cuckolded by olivier martinez diane lane goes off to have steamy a steamy affair in an artist's warehouse loft apartment in new york while richard Gere wonders what his beautiful wife is up to what's that one called <laughs> i know it's uh it's it's high it's high up there uh, you know for for some fans um but yeah now it's, it probably sounds like I'm having a go at Richard Gere. I'm not. I'm, I'm just trying to come to terms with my how I feel about him. Because I tell you, there is... I go back to that looking to, looking for Mr. Goodbar thing. And it's in American Gigolo. And it's in the kind of extraordinary... And extraordinarily not good, but also extraordinarily kind of brilliant, um, breathless which was directed by Jim McBride. Jim McBride, the... Again, I'm struggling. I, I don't think I've ever heard of this guy before. The director, he directed He directed other things, none of which I can remember at the moment. But he directed Breathless in 1983 with Richard Gere and a young French actress, um, what some might call an ingenue, what others might call a sex pot. A young French actress called Valérie Caprisky. That's Caprisky with a K and ending in Y. And it was a remake. It was an American remake or an American treatment or an American version of Jean-Luc Godard's A de Souffle, which uh, was translated into English as Breathless. And that was part of uh, a key movie, a key text from the French New Wave, the Nouvelle Vague, uh, starring 
Jean-Paul Belmondo and uh, an actress I always thought was French because of her name, Jeanne Seberg. Jeanne Seberg, is that how you pronounce her name? Um, I just assumed she was French, but she wasn't, was she? Was she Canadian or American? Um, The actress, the actress from the Twilight movies just played her in a biopic. Um, Kristen Stewart just played her in a biopic and was meant to be, I think, meant to be very good. And is that maybe that's what Kristen Stewart is specialising in? Because she obviously did the uh, Princess Diana movie a year or two ago as well, which I haven't seen. I haven't seen the the the, the Jeanne Jean <laughs> Jean. Well, it's either Jean or Jeanne, and I don't know which it is. Seaberg biopic, um, but she looked very good. Um, she looked like a good match physically. But yes. Jean-Luc Godard's movie, again, one I've only seen once, um, years ago, just trying to be a diligent film student. It was, I don't know if any movie captures the sort of new wave vibe more um, than that. The, The sort of, how do I remember it? Um... Again, it feels a bit meta, it feels a bit knowing, it feels a bit fourth wall breaking, um, choppy, um, deliberately kind of bringing your attention to the artifice of of filmmaking um, and just featuring two very cool characters at, at the heart of it. Um, gangster who accidentally kills a cop and then steals a car and gets a girl and goes on the run and the American the American version of it um, it just has again this kind of mad performance from Richard Gere bouncing off the screen jumping off the screen looking like I don't know like a like a an erection in a disco tuxedo. Um, he's just all swagger and twitch and pose and preen and prance, panthering and panting his way through the movie as he he follows his, well, for want of a better phrase, for want of a more delicate term, he's kind of following his dick forgive me if uh, if that's offensive but he's he's following his johnson um in 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 kind of lustful pursuit of this french student um a french woman who is a like an architecture student and he kind of hounds her and harasses her and when we first meet her in the movie they've already had some night or some nights of passion and then he disappeared, he was in Vegas, and then he comes and finds her, and he's on the run, again, for an accidental shooting of a cop, Um, and that's his thing, he steals these classic cars, and gets further down the road, and he's trying to, he's trying to get to San Francisco, to, you know, make a score, or pick up on some money he's owed, Um, and this is kind of like the thin plot, that just allows him to kind of, pursue this girl, and convince her to travel with him and I don't know if it was a language issue 
because she's speaking English. Um, but she's not, she's certainly, um, you know, physically very beautiful. And they do have, I, I guess, for, you know, for the times, you know, a very explicit sex scene. Um, and again, you've just got Gear kind of, you know, grinning and honking his way through everything. And yet, as kind of, uh, uh, you know, the word I want to use is gammy which is a nice Irish word that means crap or not cool, as many moments of the movie are. It has an unmistakable momentum. And that momentum is largely tethered to Gear's performance. And there are some sequences, two in particular. His first extended driving sequence which seems to take place under a blood red sky as he listens to Jerry Lee Lewis. And he's got a sort of a, a rocker, rockabilly retro look and he's clearly enthralled to the kind of rock and roll rebel aesthetic uh, as would have been personified by some of those early rock and roll guys. Um, but that driving scene, again, kind of stylized, clearly taking place against a, a backdrop, a screen. But the blood red thing is it's just visually really striking and later later in the movie there's a great sequence that takes place behind a cinema screen as gear and kaprisky are hiding out from the cops and again they fall into a sex scene but it's played out um against this um this noir sort of pulpy uh, movie called I'm just gonna it's, is it called Guns for All or it's got guns in the title um, not a movie I've seen but a movie that's very highly regarded by, by film critics and I hope I hope I remember I hope I remember what it was called Gun Crazy that's it 1950 um a nasty little noir apparently and my stupid my stupid phone doesn't want to load the information I need um, let me see if it comes up again anyway gun crazy and it's that scene is you know a sequence from that movie is playing out in you know in black and white on this cinema screen and they're behind the screen um making love and again there's some amazing lighting the red is there again so if the red is meant to symbolize danger or the full stop or sex or passion or hell or an inferno i don't know but it's effective and visually it looks great and there's something I'm just thinking here. I don't know if we could draw a line to Harvey Keitel in Bad Lieutenant and his unashamed nudity, his muscled male body and a kind of a... Well, I mean, why should he be ashamed? It's 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 Is it peacocking? Is it... Is it just... A confidence 
um, it's a very particular thing because of course you don't see much you don't see a disproportionate amount of male nudity in American movies um, there's something it, it's almost a, a taboo um, and certainly to show the erection is taboo but full frontal male nudity is a rare thing in in Hollywood movies in American movies but Richard Gere was always ready it seemed to strip off as he did in American Gigolo as he does in Breathless um, and that was part of part of the kind of the, the joke around Richard Gere and his career um, particularly um, in his, his younger days um, but he's you know he, 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 there's an interview you can find from 1990 in Variety and he talks about his comfort with nudity and his comfort with um, the more European cinema aesthetic the relaxed attitude more relaxed attitude to sexuality and um, you know the naked body on screen um, that interview is worth reading um, I can't remember the journalist's name but the name of the interview is High Gear with uh, the name spelt obviously like Richard Gear's surname um, and there's a great quote from that which I thought I'd share with you just staying in this kind of and this isn't criticism this was a quote from one of his ex-girlfriends because she was commenting on um, his dedication to Buddhism now remember at that stage in 1990 he would have been 41 so he was growing up and and yet there's still something that comes across in the article um, that I don't know he still seems kind of precocious in a way but this quote from his ex-girlfriend was kind of interesting I thought um, let me see she says but Richard takes himself very seriously when we'd go on a vacation to a beach somewhere he couldn't relax he has to be doing something or thinking about something all the time I think that's why he has turned to his religion so much though he's been at it for a very long time when someone places so much importance on their career like Richard did not even pleasure is a diversion and see that hints at the Pasha thing <laughs> tolerating his own pleasure then they have to find some escape some solace he finds that somehow in his Buddhist stuff and this is a bit I like but he's no monk he still likes to go out he likes to be seen all actors like to be seen when we were living in Los Angeles during the filming of Gigolo he'd love going out to restaurants where all the other famous actors and actresses were Actors and actresses love to stare at each other, proving they exist. That's their real religion. I think that's brilliant. <laughs> Actors and actresses love to stare at each other, proving they exist. That's their real religion. It's kind of vicious, but it's very insightful. It speaks to the actor's insecurity, the actor's vanity, the actor's ego, the actor's self-doubt, the actor's fear of not being taken seriously, the actor's imposter syndrome, because all actors are imposters, of course, constantly playing other people. 
So what does that make them feel? Am I real? Because that wasn't me. That wasn't me in that role. But if I'm out and I see another actor and I'm looking at them and they're looking at me, if I see them and they see me, we're both we're both here, right? We're both real, right? Aren't we? Aren't we? So the desire to be real, the desire to be authentic. Um, yeah, pretty. That's great stuff, though. That is great stuff. Um, yeah. And so all all I was going to say um, there, like the, for some reason, Harvey Keitel came into my mind. He has a naked scene dancing in a room in Bad Lieutenant. Um, and there's something, there is something a little bit transgressive and a little bit rebellious and revolutionary about the male actor who is willing to be sort of unselfconsciously naked um, on screen. And I guess it's kind of refreshing in a way. Um, and Richard Gere did it so much that it, it, it be kind of it, it became the, the, the butt of a joke and his butt became the butt of a joke because um, it was always out um, as well as his, uh, you know, the, the, the front view. Like, look, listen to me, I'm speaking like a schoolgirl. <laughs> Trying to come up with euphemisms for his, yes, his penis. That's right. The penis of gear, much commented upon, apparently, uh, over the years. But um, there's also something in all of this about male you know, objectifying male beauty and objectifying male sex symbols. And that's why I was going to briefly mention Paul Newman. I just read a couple of long profiles of Paul Newman, which were out in the last few years um, in connection to a memoir of of Paul Newman's, um, which must have been, yeah, published, well, obviously published posthumously, but written by someone else. I'm trying to think of the author's name. Um, it's, I think the, the book has a title like uh, The Extraordinary Life of an Ordinary Man, something like that. But there was also, I haven't seen it yet, but I'd like to, the HBO six-part series, documentary series, uh, directed by Ethan Hawke at the request of Paul Newman's family, which is called like The Last Film Stars or The Last Movie Stars. And basically it's a six-part series about Paul Newman and his wife, uh, Joanne Woodward, um, and looking at their, yeah, their life as actors and as a, a couple who were madly in love with each other, but, you know, there were many flaws there. Newman was a highly, a high-functioning uh, alcoholic who drank, you know, huge amounts of uh, alcohol, apparently, through his, his kind of working days, um, his, 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 all his days, it seems. Um, and it's why one of his most acclaimed performances in Sidney Lumet's The Verdict um, was so compelling because he was drawing on his own experience as a hardened drinker. But Paul Newman had a very uneasy relationship with his his looks um, and felt like a phony um, and felt like he couldn't deliver the emotional goods of the great actors of his generation 
um, and felt that he was nothing more than a beautiful face and a beautiful pair of blue eyes and a beautiful body and it seems he kind of hated it or he was just dogged with self-doubt um, and yeah it's an interesting thing isn't it the um, the <laughs> the burden of beauty like can you be taken seriously if you're so beautiful that that's all people can see and how many actresses have had to deal with this how many beautiful women have had to deal with this and of course you know how many women have been objectified to um so you know to to extreme you know extreme sort of pigeonholing extents where that pigeonholing extents so that's all they're allowed to be a beautiful body um you know the 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 object of male fantasy um and that that's another point i was going to make about richard Gere. you know if you're a female listener um you might be listening to me you might have been listening to me crap on about richard Gere and my struggle to kind of get him and they're going listen <laughs> you know you're not meant to get him because he's he's just a, he's a, he's just a sex object he's just a beautiful um hunk of of man meat um and that's it and maybe if you're a woman um i don't know if, i don't know how high he scores um on on the gay charts but as an object of desire like i mean maybe that's it that's enough and that must be true for a lot of actresses as well certain actresses that capture the male um the male libido the male sex drive the male sexual fantasy and women might go what's the big deal and men i don't i don't know i'm i'm, I'm just exploring that thought as i sit here but that that seems very that seems very plausible to me um i don't know but i'm i'm not going to open the door to kind of like different types but of course certain women have always been thrown out there to go this is sex um, and of course marilyn monroe comes to mind straight away um i'm not sure you know she is in inimitable um and actresses have tried and failed um sharon stone probably had that for a moment um but both marilyn monroe and sharon stone were really good actresses um scarlett johansson perhaps again another great actress but she had a, a moment cameron diaz now is cameron diaz a great actress maybe she's a very good comedian i'm not sure is that an insult am i damning her with faint praise i just can't think of um big dramatic roles that cameron diaz has done and she seems to also have given up acting uh, i see i've gone over the hour mark and you're thinking this was meant to end <laughs> before now um but i feel i can't leave i can't finish up today's episode without without giving you these poems without giving you these poems so i'm going to do that now you may have along the road 
we have traveled on this episode. You may have asked yourself, what is a Pasha? P-A-S-H-A. Um, a Pasha was a high-ranking officer in the Ottoman Empire. Turkish, um, perhaps, perhaps, I'm not sure, Muslim. Um, and a Pasha, I think, could have multiple wives, uh, as is possible in Islam, but maybe also a harem. I'm not sure about that part, but that, I think, was implied in some quarters. So that's what a Pasha was, a person of power, a person of influence and person of status. And it originates in Turkey, as I say. So I was curious to see if I could find any um, any literature or poems about Pashas or featuring references to Pashas. I found one. It wasn't very interesting. It was a bad poem and it was quite self-serious and a bit pompous and, and a tribute to, uh, I think, a military leader um, from Turkish history and it was just really dull but I came across this other poem that's not about a pasha but makes reference to someone being like a pasha and I thought the poem was quite entertaining the poem is called it is later than you think and it's by a poet I had never heard of until a couple of hours ago the poet's name is Robert William Service and he was a British-Canadian poet who had, amongst other things, the soubriquet, the Bard of the Yukon, because many of his poems were set in um, the, the amazing landscapes of rural Canada. So this is one of his poems, as I said, called It Is Later Than You Think. And I'm going to read you the whole thing and you can see what you think of it. Lone amid the cafe's cheer, sad of heart am I tonight. Dolefully I drink my beer, but no single line I write. There's the wretched rent to pay, yet I glower at pen and ink. Oh, inspire me, muse, I pray, it is later than you think. Hello, there's a pregnant phrase. Bravo, let me write it down, hold it with a hopeful gaze, gauge it with a fretful frown, tune it to my lyric lyre. Ah, upon starvation's brink, how the words are dark and dire, it is later than you think. Weigh them well. Behold yon band, students drinking by the door, Madly merry, buck in hand, saucers stacked to mark their score. Get you gone, you jolly scamps, let your parting glasses clink. Seek your long-neglected lamps, it is later than you think. Look again, yon dainty blonde, all allure and golden grace, oh so willing to respond, should you turn a smiling face. Play your part, poor pretty doll. Feast and frolic, 
pose and prink. There's the morgue to end it all, and it's later than you think. Jan's a playwright. Mark his face, puffed and purple, tense and tired. Pasha-like, he holds his place, hated, envied and admired. How you gobble life, my friend, wine and woman soft and pink. Well, each tether has its end. Sir, it's later than you think. See yon living scarecrow pass with a wild and wolfish stare at each empty absinthe glass as if he saw heaven there. Poor damned wretch, to end your pain, there is still the greater drink. Yonder waits the sanguine sin. It is later than you think. Lastly, you who read, I, you, who this very line may scan, think of all you planned to do. Have you done the best you can? See, the tavern lights are low, blacks the night and how you shrink. God, and is it time to go? Ah, the clock is always slow. It is later than you think. Sadly, later than you think. Far, far later than you think. What do you think of that? (laughs) Robert William Service. I kind of like it, but it's kind of... I want to use the word sophomoric it feels like a scowling judgy student sitting in the corner assured of his superiority and doing these little little sneery sketches of the people he sees in the bar around him Um, and with this rather overstated theme of time is passing the end is coming and it's there's kind of a self-pity and a fatalism in there but there's something there's something kind of gauche about the whole exercise that I find amusing and when I was reading up a little bit about Robert W. Service it seems in more literary circles his work was considered doggerel (laughs) Again, just so insulting, but it, it immediately I, I kind of warmed to him even more because he just had these sort of boy's own adventurous um, kind of ballads that he wrote, and he was considered a sub Kipling. And I'm no great fan of Kipling. He, he seemed to, to me, and it's not that I'm particularly well read about Kipling. It's more the kind of colonial lens that he seemed to epitomise. Uh, and this guy was considered, as I said, a poor man's Kipling, um, an imitator. Um, yeah. But, yes, um, make of him what you will. I think one of his his most famous poem, what was it called? Um, and again, I'm not familiar with this guy at all, but what the hell was it called? He has one called The Shooting of Dan McGrew. Um, I feel like I'm familiar with that, but no, no, there's another poem of his, 
I can't see it here. Anyway, sure, look him up. Look him up. You'll find him. Um, I'll see. Notable works. Rhymes of a Red Cross Man. That's That was one that seemed to people seem to like. Oh, The Cremation of Sam McGee, apparently, was one of his most famous poems as well. And he was inspired by tales of the Klondike Gold Rush. So tales of prospectors and cowboys and... Um, yeah, frontiers men, I suppose. Um, but but I, do you know who I think of? I think of that great character played by Saul Rubinek in Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven, where um, he's writing about the Richard Harris character and refers to him in his little um, sketch, his journalistic sketch, as the Duke of Death. And then Gene Hackman, who's the real big bad of the piece, he reads it but mispronounces it as the duck of death, which he thinks was very amusing. But maybe Saul Rubinek was this kind of character in awe of these um, wildsmen of the Wild West and a little bit too sycophantic and smitten. Anyway, thinking, realising that Robert W. Service was not highly regarded it just brought to mind I had a memory of reading this other poem um, an infamous an infamous poem infamous because it's so extraordinarily bad and written by a poet regarded as possibly the worst poet in in the history of of, of poetry <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to make it through all of this but this is a poem um, written about a railway disaster. And let me see, do I, is there a publishing date on this? Oh, well, yeah, written. The disaster happened. You'll know when it happened because the poet repeats it so many times in the poem. This is called The Tay Bridge Disaster and it's by William McGonagall. And I'm going to leave you with this beauty uh, this week to wrap up the episode. Um Oh my God, dare I attempt a Scottish accent? I don't know. I might not be able to sustain it. But um, let me see, let me see. Beautiful railway bridge of the Silvery Tay. Alas, I am very sorry to say that 90 lives have been taken away on the last Sabbath day of 1879, which will be remembered for a very long time. Twas about our boot. <laughs> Twas about seven o'clock at night, and the wind it blew with all its might, and the rain came pouring down, and the dark clouds seemed to frown, and the demon of the air seemed to say, "I'll blow down the bridge of Tay." When the train left Edinburgh, the passengers' hearts were light and felt no sorrow. But Boreas blew a terrific gale, which made their hearts for to quail, and many of the passengers with fear did say, I hope God will send us safe across the bridge of Tay. But when the train came near to Wormit Bay, Boreas he did loud and angry bray, and shook the central girders of the bridge of Tay. On the last Sabbath day of 1879, which will be remembered 
for a very long time. So the train sped on with all its might, and Bonnie Dundee soon hove in sight, and the passengers' hearts felt light, thinking they would enjoy themselves on the new year, with their friends at home they loved most dear, and wish them all a happy new year. So the train moved slowly along the bridge of Tay, until it was about mid a boot, <laughs> until it was a boot midway. Then the central girders with a crash gave way, and down went that train and passengers into the Tay. The storm fiend did loudly bray, loudly bray, because ninety lives had been taken away on the last Sabbath day of 1879, which will be remembered for a very long time. As soon as the catastrophe came to be known, the alarm from mouth to mouth, mouth to mouth was blown, and the cry rang out, oot, <laughs> I'm losing it, and the cry rang out all o'er the town, good heavens, the Tay Bridge is blown down, and the passenger train from Edinburgh, which filled all the people's hearts with sorrow, and made them for to turn pale because none of the passengers were saved to tell the tale how the disaster happened on the last Sabbath day of 1879, which will be remembered for a very long time. It must have been an awful sight to witness in the dusky moonlight, while the storm fiend did laugh and angry did bray along the railway bridge of the Silvery Tay. Oh! ill-fated bridge of the silvery tay i must now conclude my lay conclude my lay by telling the world fearlessly without the least dismay that your central girders would not have given way at least many sensible men do say had they been supported on each side with buttresses at least many sensible men confesses for the stronger we our hooses do build, the less chance we have of being killed. Holy hell. <laughs> now, I have to apologise first and foremost for my dubious Scottish accent. Um, I didn't really test it out. But that is an extraordinarily awful poem. Oh my goodness oh my goodness um i hope my accent didn't distract you from the awfulness of the poem maybe the awfulness of my accent was a, a good match that is extraordinarily bad hilariously bad you need to go and find it <laughs> the tay that's t-a-y the tay bridge disaster it is wonderfully horrendous go find it and read it okay listen <laughs> that's um that's a strange line isn't it to get from richard gear richard gear's unburgeoned sexiness richard gear tolerating his own pleasure like a pasha that brought me to the other poem that brought me to this poem. That brings me to the end of this week's episode of The Clear Out. I hope you've enjoyed what you heard. I hope you found it diverting, interesting, amusing, perplexing, whatever. 
I'll be back next week with something else, something completely different, I expect. I've been Dara Clear. This has been The Clear Out. And those have been my thoughts on Richard Gere and a couple of dodgy poems. Um, Throw me some love on social media. You'll find those links there wherever you're listening. If you want to support this independent podcast, you can do so using the Patreon link. That's patreon.com forward slash the clear out. I'd welcome whatever you can contribute. I would consider it an endorsement, just as I do any positive comments uh, or recommendations of the podcast you can make. That's it. I'm done until next time. Thank you so much for listening. It has been my pleasure, even if it hasn't been yours. And that was nowhere near a shorter episode, but it flowed for me. (laughs) Okay, take it easy. I'll talk to you soon. And please, as always, mind yourselves and keep your clothes on if you want to, but uh, don't if there's an opportunity. I know uh, Richard Gere would feel that way. Okay, take it easy. Talk to you soon. See you. Bye.